I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to find life in the midst of the madness of this world of death and chaos. Four weeks ago, according to our reckoning of time, Jacob left his home in a rush to escape his brother's wrath. And for these past four weeks, we've been exploring Jacob's time in Haran. We've been with him in his self-imposed exile, away from the protection of his father and mother and facing the world on his own. And while here in the house of his uncle, he discovered something. He saw firsthand his own pattern of living was one that is painful to experience when on the receiving end. Now, it has been 20 years at a minimum, according to Jacob's reckoning of time. 20 years of work and trial, of feast and famine. In this time, Jacob came face to face with his own personal demons and failures, and he began to change. He began to grow from who he was as a child to a mature and well-adjusted adult. And it's taken him 20 years of work to overcome his own faults. This right here, the simple scope of what occurred in this 20 years, it should comfort us. Why? Because it reveals that lasting change takes time. Our Western mindset is not one that's comfortable with waiting and working. We want what we want and we want it now. Work for it? Spend time purposefully engaged in self-reflection and prayer? Nah, we'd rather drown out the things that confront us. And our society offers a multitude of methods through which we can disappear. There's sports, games, movies, TV, news, crafts, projects, work, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, music, pills, or even deep Bible study can all act as a distraction that keeps us from this work. Well, none of these things is evil in themselves, but they provide opportunities to ignore our own faults, to distract ourselves from where we need to work. In many cases, these things give us the impetus to focus on the faults of others. Rarely do they get us to pause and to reflect and to look inward at ourselves and our faults. The fact is that everyone looks out into the world and wants it to be changed now, but few of us want to change ourselves. When we know that God can change us in an instant, we see examples of it both in Scripture and in our reality, and so when He doesn't give us that instantaneous relief, we begin to focus on how can I get this instantaneous deliverance, rather than taking the long road of self-control and purposeful change. Instead, what we see here in the story of Jacob in exile is an example of being patient in the process of growth taking the time necessary to learn the lessons that God has for us in this process. 
It took him 20 years for Jacob to change. 20 years of being faced daily with who he had been and who he no longer wanted to be. Now, God could have changed Jacob instantly, but he didn't. He forced Jacob to go through difficult and trying circumstances, oppression and shame and deception, and he walked with Jacob silently the whole time. The fact is that if we don't go through the process of growth and learning to deal with our failures, we miss out on an opportunity. This is something that we're going to see in today's Parsha, because this week, the exile is over. Jacob is coming home, and the first thing that he needs to do, though, he needs to deal with his brother, the one who he cheated and shamed in his past. He needs to repair that broken relationship, and it will take the lessons that he's learned in Laban's house to enable him to make that step. Now, as this time for this new man that is in many ways still Jacob, but in other ways has become someone else, someone different, and it was the time of struggle and growth that enabled this new man to be the one who came home. So let's read this Parsha and then talk along these lines as we examine the text. Genesis 32, 1 through 33, 17. And Yaakov went on his way, and the messengers of Elohim met him. And when Yaakov saw them, he said, This is the camp of Elohim. And he called the name of the place Machanaim. And Yaakov sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, to the land of Seir, the field of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Say this to my master Esav, Your servant Yaakov said this, I have sojourned with Levan and stayed there until now. And I have bulls, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to inform my master to find favor in your eyes. So the messengers returned to Yaakov, saying, We came to your brother Esav, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. And Yaakov was greatly afraid and distressed, so he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two groups. And he said, If Esav comes to the one group and strikes it, then the other group which is left shall escape. And Yaakov said, O Elohim of my father Abraham, and Elohim of my father Yitzhak, Hashem, who said to me, Return to your land and to your relatives, and I do good to you. I do not deserve the least of all the loving kindness and all the truth which you have shown your servant, for I passed over this yard and with my staff, and now I have become two camps. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Aseb, for I fear him, lest he come and shall strike me and the mother with their children. For you said, I shall certainly do good to you, and shall make your seed as the sand of the sea, which are too numerous to count. And he spent the night there, and took what came to his hand as a present for Aseb, his brother. Two hundred female goats, twenty male goats, two hundred ewes, and twenty rams, thirty suckling camels with their colts, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten foals. And he gave them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put some distance between drove and drove. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Asev my brother meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Yaakov's. It is a present sent to my master, Esav, and see, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second and the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, Speak to Esav this same word when you find him. And you shall say, 
Also, look, your servant Yaakov is behind us, for he said, Let me appease him with the present that goes before me, and after that see his face, he might accept me. And the present passed over before him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven sons, and he passed over the ford of Yabok. And he took them and sent them over the stream and sent over what he had. And Yaakov was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he did not overcome him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Yaakov's hip was dislocated as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I am not letting you go until you have blessed me. So he asked him, What is your name? And he said, Yaakov. He said, Your name is no longer called Yaakov, but Yisrael, because you have striven with Elohim and with men, and have overcome. And Yaakov asked him, saying, Please let me know your name. And he said, Why do you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And Yaakov called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen Elohim face to face, and my life is preserved. And the sun rose on him as he passed over Penuel, and he limped on his hip. That is why the children of Israel to this day do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of the thigh of Yaakov in the sinew of the hip. And Yaakov lifted his eyes and looked, and he saw Esav coming, and with him four hundred men. And he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the female servants and their children in front, and Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Yosef last. And he himself passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Asav ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? And he said, the children with whom Elohim has favored your servant. Then the female servants came near, they and the children, and bowed themselves. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed themselves. And Yosef and Rachel came near, and they bowed themselves. Then Esav said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, To find favor in the eyes of my master. But Esav said, I have enough, my brother. Let what you have remain yours. And Yaakov said, No, please. If I have now found favor in your eyes, then receive my present from my hand, because I have seen your face, like seeing the face of Elohim, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because Elohim has favored me, and because I have all I need. And he urged him, and he took it. And he said, Let us depart and go, and let me go before you. But he said to him, My master knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me, and if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flocks shall die. Please let my master go before his servant, and let me lead on slowly, according to the pace of the livestock that go before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my master in Seir. And Esav said, Please let me leave with you some of the people whom are with me. But he said, Why this? Let me find favor in the eyes of my master. And Asaph returned that day on his way to Seir, and Yaakov set out to Sukkot, and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. That is why the name of the place is called Sukkot. At the beginning of chapter 32, Jacob, while on his way home, he's met by some messengers of God, and Jacob calls the place Mechanaim, which translates as two camps. Now these two verses here, they're a bit confusing. Why does the text tell us about angels meeting Jacob on the road? What's the point of this? They don't say anything. They don't provide any insight or commands to Jacob. 
They simply appear and are the reason for the name given to the place by Jacob. Now, these two verses, however, I believe that they provide a key of sorts for a few things that we'll see going on later in this chapter. So let's take a step back and see if we can define the various pieces present in the narrative. Now, the whole of this Parsha is a single narrative, Jacob's reunion with Esau, but it is split into two parts. One could call them two acts, with two scenes in each act. First is the preparations for the reunion, the fear, the prayer, the gifts, the strategy, and so forth. And then the second is the execution of the reunion, the fear, the prayer, the gifts, the strategy, all visited once again. Now, each of these two parts of the story of Jacob and Esau's reunion is preceded by Jacob encountering someone of supernatural origin. Now, these encounters with the supernatural, they contain within them pointers of things that are upcoming in the story of Jacob and Esau. These things that we can focus our attention on what is being highlighted. So first off, let's begin with Act 1, the preparation for the encounter. This section begins with Jacob's encounter with the camp of angels in many translations. But in the Hebrew, the word malach, or is simply messengers. This is important because the word translated as angel in both Hebrew and in Greek is simply messenger. Malach in Hebrew and anglos in Greek. Now translators take it upon themselves to make the distinction between human and supernatural messengers. They use the Hebrew word for the human messengers, and they'll use the Greek word for the supernatural messengers. So when we read of angels in scripture, we need to stop and make sure that the translators got it right in our translation. There are some places where the distinction between a heavenly messenger and a human messenger isn't all that clear, and the way that it's translated into English can have some theological implications on us as the readers. So, Jacob is met by messengers from God in verse 3. We read that Jacob himself then sends messengers to his brothers. Now, if we read these words as angels, we'll miss that congruence here. Jacob sends a message to his brother that is, in essence, I have increased greatly while I've been staying with Laban in Haran. Now, I seek to find favor in your eyes. Another way of stating this is that I have found favor with someone while in Haran. The implication is Laban, but we know that it's Hashem that he's found favor with. And now let me find favor with you. The messengers go and they return, and their message is not very encouraging. Esau's coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. Esau's coming with an army. And this, frankly, this makes Jacob afraid. He knows that he treated Esau unfairly in the past. He knows that his deception caused Esau to seek his life. And now, 20 years later, Jacob is returning and Esau is approaching with an army? And what is Jacob's solution to this? Well, his first idea? Split into two camps. Machanaim. These opening verses gave the pattern for Jacob's strategy for dealing with Esau. Send messengers and split into two camps. The idea that is, if Esau does attack, he will get one camp, but perhaps the other will have a chance of escaping. So after he splits into two camps, Jacob says a prayer. He says, O oh God of Abraham and Isaac, you gave me a command. Uh, frankly, I don't deserve the kindness that you have shown me up to this point, because I left with only my staff, but now 
I'm returning as two camps, as Machanaim. Okay, God, you told me to come home. You told me that you would do good to me. But it sure looks as if Esau is about to kill us all. Oh, I know you made a promise to me, and so I am calling on that promise. Because I have no other recourse at this point. I can't defeat Esau. He's too great for me. And if he means me harm, I will be destroyed. I also, I can't return to Haran. That bridge has been burned, and there's now a covenant blocking me from going back. But you said that you would make my offspring as the sands of the sea, so please be faithful to your promise. The next morning, Jacob gathers together a gift for Esau, and for the entire next day as Esau is approaching, he is greeted with significant gifts. Three separate sets of gifts, and each is a kingly gift. During that next night, Jacob sends his wives and his children across the ford of the Jabbok ahead of him, and Jacob finds himself alone. Now this opening act it is a bit short, because this opening act is not where the meat of the Parsha is located, and yet there are some very important insights that we can find within this first section. So first let's look at the trajectory of this pattern. Now in basic geometry, you'll learn that if you have placed two points on a plane, then you can extrapolate a line from those two points. Now, it doesn't matter how close or how far apart those points are, you will get a line that will continue into eternity. What are the two points of the first act? Well, messengers sent from a representative of God to representatives of the world for the purpose of creating peace. And then the camp of God being split into two, two groups or two peoples. Now, with these two points, we can trace a line both forward and backward with some degree of accuracy. It began with Adam and Eve, two camps of God, right? Then Cain and Abel. Then there's the line of Seth and the line of Cain. Then Abraham, separated from the world. Isaac, separated from Ishmael. Jacob, from Esau. Joseph, from the rest of his brothers. Levi, from the rest of his brothers. Judah and Israel. Jew and Gentile. Judaism and Christianity. And on and on and on it goes. Two camps, both camps finding their place in the origin of God's people. One, one tends to deviate from the path of God, but the other stays fairly true. One tends to be attacked or even destroyed, while the other that stays true is blessed in some way. Now, while this later part of one camp being destroyed by the enemy doesn't specifically occur here in this Parsha, as we follow that line both backward and forward, we'll find that this is true in most cases. It is Jacob's fear and his reason for operating in this way that is fulfilled in these other instances. Because a key is just that. It's a key. Not necessarily the fullness of the pattern. Deviations will occur in the fulfillment of the splitting of camps. Levi and the other tribes? No one is destroyed outright, but one is in fact attacked. Joseph and his brothers? No one dies specifically, uh, even though there is a report of one of them dying, but the brothers do experience hardship. And we can spend a lot of time comparing and contrasting each of these and more, but that's something I want to leave to you in your study, if you wish to spend more time on that particular aspect of these chapters. For me, for now, I find it interesting intellectually, but I don't think that it really means anything for us at this time. There's really no practical application other than maybe a recognition of a way that God works.
And we have no way of accurately tracking this to today without a lifetime of historical study and hours upon hours and days of prayer and contemplation. So I'm not going to go any further with this, but feel free to pursue this at your own leisure. One other thing of note in what I'm calling Act 1 of this Parsha is Jacob's prayer. This is something that I know that I have prayed from time to time. It's the prayer of God, you have made promises to me and you have given me commands. And right now, it looks impossible to keep your commands and yet still receive your promise. I'm afraid that if I continue in obedience, I will be destroyed. I'll be swallowed up. I'll be burnt out. But you have given both the command and you've given the promise, and so I will continue forward in what you've told me. I will place my trust in you to remain faithful to your promise. That symbiotic relationship of faith and righteousness is contained in this prayer. I will remain faithful to your command, and I have faith that you will remain faithful to your promise. These circumstances are causing me fear, but I'll continue on anyway. This faithful attitude in the face of danger is one that I I think we could all stand to learn from. So on to Act 2. In Act 2, it opens up with Jacob being alone in the dark. And then he's attacked by a man. Now, Genesis 32 specifically uses the word to describe Jacob's aggressor. He's a man. Nowhere in Genesis does it give us the implication that this was an angel. Now, there are some who have taken this and run with it to make the aggressor into something he isn't. He's only a man! Uh, but then we read this in Hosea 12, 2-4. It says, And Hashem has a controversy with Yehuda to punish Yaakov according to his ways and to repay him according to his deeds. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he strove with Elohim. He strove with the messenger and overcame. He wept and sought his favor, and he found him in Bethel. And there he spoke to us. Hosea calls the one that Jacob wrestles with a messenger. But as we've already talked about, a messenger can be either supernatural or natural. So, is it an angel? (laughs) Well, it's certainly not only a man. The fact is that messengers of God, commonly called angels, are often called men in Scripture. Genesis 18 is an example of this, back when the three men visited Abraham just before the destruction of Sodom. Messengers, anglos in the Greek, are defined by their purpose, not by their nature. Angels are called men from time to time, so scripture is not caught up in being absolute in its distinction of natural versus supernatural. So rather than trying to figure out if it's a natural or supernatural messenger, the point that it seems to be making here is what is it that's being sent from God? What is an messenger? Well, it's just that. It's someone who is carrying a message. But frankly, that could be either human or supernatural being. And the Bible doesn't care to make this distinction very often. There are a few places where it does. When it's not clear, though, I think it's, uh, let's not make it the focus of our attention. So once again, it's a distraction from the things that really matter. So the man is a messenger. And so we need to understand that he is, in fact, delivering a message to Jacob. In the same way, we see this in Acts 1. The message of the messengers in the camp is one that we can track through history. 
So let's see if it holds true in this case as well. A message is given in the dark. It's a message that's not clearly seen. The fact that it attacks Jacob in this dark moment, the night before he's to confront his brother, and while he is alone, should not escape us. So let's see this messenger as a symbol of Jacob's own human nature, rearing its ugly head one more time to attempt to get Jacob to submit. I'm not stating that that's actually what it was, but for this exercise, let's look at it that way. This messenger is Jacob's human nature, trying to get Jacob to submit, to flee, to run, to do the Jacob thing, to deceive, to act in arrogance, to perhaps even abandon his family. Because God didn't promise that these kids were to be the seed that the blessing was to pass through, did he? Perhaps he could run away. He could start over. If I simply run now and cut my losses, God has to keep his promise to me, right? But then, but then he would be acting in rebellion to the command that he had received. The human nature inside of us it seeks to defend our own actions before others. And I think that this is the man that Jacob wrestles with all night long. And in the process, his hip is dislocated. In the morning, his opponent asks to be released because the sun is coming up, daylight is approaching, the darkness is passing. And Jacob responds. And this response is usually translated as, I will not let you go until you bless me. Unfortunately, this doesn't carry the right connotation in English. To us, a blessing is to wish someone a positive good. But in the Hebrew, it simply means to give honor. The word barach can also mean to kneel, as in to kneel before someone or to salute them. So Jacob is simply saying that he's not going to give up. It's the other guy who's going to have to top out first. Thus, through the other guy tapping out first, Jacob will receive honor. Jacob is simply saying, I am going to persist in this. The opponent then asks Jacob's name, and he tells the opponent his name, Jacob. But then the opponent gives him a new name. The name? Israel. He who strives with God. The word Sarah means to contend, and El means God. Now, I've heard a lot of different interpretations and teachings on the many various ways and forms that Israel can be split up and some of the mysterious and mystical things that we can find within the name. Uh, the interpretation given in the text is he who strives with God. Sarah El. Put the Yod on the front, and it means he who will. So what does it mean to contend with God or to wrestle with God? to contend, wrestle, or strive, to enter into a struggle, and then to win. Now, we have an idea what it means to struggle with a man and to overcome. But when it comes to doing this with God, do these ideas hold up in the same way? How was it that Jacob overcame Laban? Well, he had his integrity as his defense. How is it that Jacob will overcome Esau? Well, with humility. Jacob himself never once in all of Scripture, save for right here, engages in a physical struggle with other humans. His family does, his sons do, but Jacob himself never once. The struggle that he engages in is not one of violence, and we will see that contrast shine very clearly next week. The struggle with man is not one of violence, and Yeshua demonstrates this for us. The struggle with man is to remain pure 
in the face of persecution. Now we'll return to this in a moment when Jacob engages in the struggle with Esau. So what does it mean to struggle with God? Once again, it doesn't mean to enter into a physical altercation with a spiritual being. This story is a symbol that we can look at and learn from. It is, as I said, a message, not just to Jacob, but to all who come after Jacob and who take on that new identity from God of Israel. Because this kind of struggle means to recognize when God is antagonizing you towards a change in action. As we saw in the story of Jacob, he was faced with men who reflected his own nature back at him. This unknown man messenger we're looking at as Jacob's human nature being reflected back on him in a very real way. The human nature has come to bite, to make one last stand, to make Jacob do something that will ruin his future. You see, the struggle began long ago with Jacob. As Jacob recognized his own deceptive nature in Laban, and then Jacob began a struggle within himself, a struggle to come to terms with his true nature, first of all, to recognize his faults, and then to struggle against that nature, to change it to what God has desired for it to be. Wrestling with God means to have God pull you in one direction, away from your past and your fallen nature. In the process, you'll be stripped of things that don't serve God or you. And it will hurt. The act of wrestling with ourselves will leave scars, permanent marks. And these scars are necessary because you will never be the same afterwards. You'll never walk the same way again when you're finished with this kind of struggle. The fight for Jacob lasted all night long. And the struggle with your own human nature it will continue through the darkest parts of your life. And you cannot let up in the struggle, even when you see the sun coming up on the horizon and you know that the light is coming and the break of dawn is coming, even when you know you will win regardless, even when the struggle changes you permanently and painfully. To be Israel means to double down and be persistent until you have received your place as Israel, not until God has blessed you and you have received that place. Winning the struggle with God is to engage in the struggle that he's placed in front of you wholeheartedly and in the end to come out victorious over that struggle that God has given you. Overcoming in the context of struggle with God does not mean making God conform to your will, but rather it means to struggle within yourself and to subdue your human nature and overcome it towards God's will. You see, if you want to be part of Israel, to be part of the nation, and it's rather simple for us. It's something that's done through the sacrifice of Yeshua. He is our ticket and our green card, so to speak, into the nation of Israel. And this alone will get you into the spiritual nation of Israel. It's the same thing as Jacob receiving the blessing from Isaac. You have the double and portion inheritance. You have the blessing of the Father the moment you accept that Yeshua's sacrifice. In that moment, when you're granted entry, you have only your staff, your office of authority to go with you. Everything else that you are to build for the kingdom of God must be built from that. The story of Jacob that we've been studying these last few weeks is more than simply a story of a single man who lived 3,700 years ago. The story of Jacob, it's each of our stories. 
is a story that we're all called to. Go out into the world. Find covenant partners. Deal with a world system that deceives. Suffer the infighting of favoritism in the family. Spend time, effort, and energy becoming fruitful. And through this all, you will be shown your base nature. And it's up to you to change when you see your nature. And the struggle between your old nature and your new will continue for an extended period. It took Jacob at least 13 years from his recognition of his deception by Laban in regards to his wives. Don't rush the process. Use it. Learn from it. Grow from it. That struggle will shape you. The struggle will scar you. The struggle will change your manner of walk and put you in a place of permanent humility. But you must persist through it all. Even when you seem to be winning, don't let up. Keep fighting. In Galatians 5.17, it says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other, so that you do not do what you desire to do. Your natural desire is not what is of God. It is at war, and that war must be engaged in. And this will be especially true when darkness and isolation sets in in your life. Over time, your human nature will eventually submit if you are of Israel. And in so doing, you will become more and more a part of Israel. Not just a member of the nation that's blessed by God, but an embodiment of the kingdom of God. In that struggle, you will see the face of God. You will see just how far you are from Him. And it will shock you to your core that you have been allowed to live. And yet, God has extended you grace, and here you are. The experience will leave you with a memorial, with a witness, a testimony of the time that you faced God, that you fought your human nature, and, at the, and in the end, you overcame. The sun will come up. The struggle will finish. A limp, it will persist. And so Jacob enters into the role of Israel. That role, reconciling the nations, blessing the nations, and seeking peace. The key to this is what we see in this story, to act in humility. The struggle with man is found in the stories surrounding this angelic struggle. On one side is the accuser who levels false accusations and seeks to devour the blessing of Jacob, pictured in Laban. And this one can only be overcome by having integrity in all of your dealings with him. The other side is that one who has a legitimate hurt, the one whose relationship you have actively damaged. And this one can only be overcome by acting in humility and apology and working to make it right. Allowing them to see that you recognize that harm that you have caused and that it has brought you pain. Jacob knows that he is wrong, that he's wronged Esau, and he does everything within his power to appease the offense that he caused his brother. Matthew 5, 23-24 says, If then... You bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother holds whatever against you. Leave your gift there before the altar, and go. First make peace with your brother, 
and then come and offer your gift. Jacob's approach, the giving of gifts the previous day, the bowing seven times in humble submission as he approached. Why did he bow seven times? A single bow is enough of a sign of submission. But we have in ancient records that demonstrate and show that in ancient Egypt, the subjects of Pharaoh would bow seven times while approaching him. And we're just simply demonstrating humility and bestowing honor. This was an act of complete submission. All of this demonstrating Jacob's own willingness to accept whatever fate it was that Esau chose for him. And it's this that leads to the response that Esau gives in return. Esau's choice? He runs to Jacob and he kisses him while weeping. And one gets the impression that was approaching to do harm to his brother, the real running in his mind saying, that weasel returns and finally I'll get my revenge. But instead, Jacob's humble approach leads to an attitude of reconciliation. Because the attitude with which you approach those whom you have offended can have a drastic difference on how they will receive you and their willingness to accept reconciliation from you. If you approach with haughtiness and pride, I was in the right, but I know that the command is, so I'll do this with my flesh, but my heart's not in it. You will fail. Only a true recognition of the pain that you have caused the other will begin to make amends. Jacob could have approached and said, Look, brother, I'm sorry you were hurt when this, but, but God promised. I had the prophecy. Mom, no. Anything after the but would have negated everything that came before. It would have revealed that Jacob was still rationalizing and defending his own actions in his mind. His sorry is only skin deep. And that's not true repentance. This is something that we need to learn as people, especially if you're married. If you go to your wife and you apologize and say, I'm sorry, but you're done. The moment you say, but you're still rationalizing why you did it. You're excusing the pain you caused. You can't do that. It's a skin-deep apology. It is not true repentance. What Jacob offers Esau, it is true repentance. No excuses. Whatever you choose to do with me, I'll accept it. Just do it to me. But leave my people alone. The relationship based on this is refounded. Jacob, sure in his own blessing, does not need to posture before his brother. His hope is not in Esau's response, but in God's control over the hearts of others. Esau's initial response, who are these with you? What have you been up to all this time, little brother? These are the ones whom God has blessed me with. So what's the meaning of all this? I simply want to find favor and grace in your eyes. But I have enough. Let what is yours remain yours. No, no, I owe you. I am in debt to you. If I have found grace in your eyes, please accept my gifts. And here's where it gets interesting, the next thing that Jacob says. Because seeing your face is like seeing the face of God, because you were pleased with me. Seeing the face of God. We just read that, didn't we? Yeah. Earlier, Jacob wrestled 
all night. He defeated the man. He defeated the human nature. He faced God and did not receive the death that was due him in the presence of God. He recognized that God should have killed him for who he was, but that he didn't. God worked with him and through him to build him into a person who embodies the kingdom of God. And now, facing his brother, facing the death he rightly deserves from Esau, and not receiving it, but rather finding grace from Esau, it was the same thing. He knows he deserves death, and yet he receives life and grace from that one who has that legitimate claim on his life. Now this, this is a line that we can track all through eternity, even through our own lives. We who are in Messiah, we have caught a glimpse of the face of God in that we recognize that God has a legitimate claim against us. And yet, we're allowed to live. Not just to live, but brought into relationship once again, reconciled at peace. What a beautiful picture this is of what it means to face God in the humility of Messiah, finding favor from both God and man, wrestling with God and man and overcoming. And that, that's what it means to be Israel, to take on the identity of one who struggles with and overcomes both God and man, to act in a way that you find grace with all who have a legitimate claim against you, and your own integrity protecting you from those who would make false accusations. This is what it means to be Israel, not just a citizen of Israel, but to enter into the calling as citizens, to embody the ideals of Israel. This whole scenario reflects on a small scale what it means when God said in Genesis 12, I will bless you and all the world will be blessed through you. God gave that same blessing to Jacob, and it took time for Jacob to realize the fullness of that blessing and to make the necessary personal changes in his life. And that blessing came through humility. In the end, the blessing that Jacob received from God passed back to the world and put him in a place to bless Esau, and to thus create a place for peace with the one who's been wronged. And that's the final lesson we have in this whole scenario. It's something that I opened with. When you become part of the nation of Israel, you begin a process. But we must realize it's a process. It's not usually an immediate thing. We all know that God can change us instantly from who we are into who we need to be, but that rarely happens. And when it does, it's usually at the end of the process and for a specific purpose. And while still in the process, we must learn to not hate the process, but to engage in it, to face it, and to be patient with the process. And that means being patient with ourselves and our own slow growth. Not to hate ourselves because we end up being slow learners. We have to learn to realize that the change that God desires for his people is not something that's going to happen overnight. God could have dealt with sin and death the moment it reared its ugly head, but that would have left the universe in shambles. He could have fixed man and ushered in the millennium just after Yeshua's resurrection, but he didn't, and he doesn't. He has patience, 
He has a process that's working, and he is allowing that process to work its fullness in humanity. He's not seeking simply a remainder of people to enter into his kingdom, but he's seeking a multitude beyond count to enter into his kingdom. God could deal with our own human nature immediately, but that would leave us and our lives in shambles. Frankly, we would die instantly if he were to do so. If God dealt with us as we deserve and as justice requires, we'd all be dead before our first breath. It's God's grace that he has provided a process and the help necessary to overcome our human nature. And he's invited each one of us to engage in that process. It's his patience that allows us to continue to exist without immediate death. Let's accept the process and the waiting and the working for what it is. It's a gift from God. It's his grace manifest. Let's accept with patience our own faults and work to overcome them. Let's wrestle with ourselves. Never let up. Never surrender. Wrestle your inner nature and your sinful flesh until it yields. Continue to force it into submission over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Because habits don't change overnight. They take time. They take very purposeful awareness. And if habits don't change overnight, just imagine how much worse it is with your nature. But in the end, our wrestling is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers of darkness and our very own wickedness that's encoded in our flesh and our humanity. It's only time and persistence and God's help that will win this battle. If God simply took away the struggle, we would never learn anything. We wouldn't grow. We would stagnate and die. We would never overcome or win. And if we don't do that, we'll never become Israel. And becoming Israel, that's a huge part of Dereshchai, of seeking life, because that, that's the goal. So keep your eyes on the prize at the end of the process and continue to work and to struggle and to seek for life in all of its forms. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.